As Heather said, our reading is from Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. Now what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I've done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, that you might send them far from their homeland. See, I'm going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them, and I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the wine press is full, and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. This is a reading of God's word. Thanks, Howie. We're in the final um, chapter of Joel. It's a bit intense, right? And at the end of our service, um, we'll have a time to come to communion. And I just mentioned that there's a way to participate. Um, with House Church, um, one, John Nellimo has made bread for us today. There's another way to participate, so I just want to point that out to you. Um, so for those of you who are familiar what goes on there, um, check out the labels so you know which bread you want, but we can thank John Nellimo for his provision of bread. Um, the final chapter of Joel. We kind of came with a bit of a punch, right? Um, I had a friend that I came to know just recently, and when that person found out I was a pastor... They asked if I preached, and I said, yeah, I actually do. I do preach. And um, the person looked at me and said, um, are you like the fire and brimstone kind of preacher? Because, <laughs> you know, that's what most people have the idea of what it means to be a preacher, straight up fire and brimstone. But today, the stereotype kind of fits. It's a bit of fire and brimstone. Um... Joel is concentrating, maybe as you heard the reading, over and over again, there's a statement there about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord 
um, in the text, in the scriptural narrative, in the ear of the hearer, would have been loud. Because that day would have been a signal or a loud alarm for the day of judgment. And for most people, it makes God seem pretty intense. This idea that there's going to be a final day of judgment that God brings on humanity and on the earth. And for most people, that's scary. And in light of that, like our job is to tell people that it's scary. Which is why people are like, when you're a preacher... I'm going to do the fire and brimstone. Because that's what people perceive about what it means to talk about God's judgment. That we are here to tell people that God is scary. And so when we read a text like this, maybe those are the assumptions that we bring to this notion of God bringing judgment. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that right? Is God scary? What does it mean to be judged by God? There's a few textual cues that let us know that this moment is talking about God's judgment. Verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Verse 12, let the nations, or let the nations be roused, let them advance in the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge the nations on every side. Jehoshaphat means God judges. So not only does it tell us that God is sitting there to judge, the word itself, um, the valley itself, is um, God judges. And it's probably not referring there to an actual valley, but to this underlying reality that God judges. And then the first section of this book, or this chapter in this book, chapter 3, outlines who the judgment is for and why. So there's names, if you look there, Tyre and Sidon, the region of Philistia, and then more broadly, the nations. They're to be judged by God. Now in the biblical text, Tyre and Sidon and Philistia are historically enemies of Israel can read about what they do and how they've acted in other books of the Bible, like Zechariah and Ezekiel. And Philistia is known for its violence and cruelty. A very violent nation, pillaging and killing and raping. So it is known for violence and tyranny. And then Tyre and Sidon are port areas. They're kind of trade hubs, and they are commercially successful. And with that success, they're proud. And they have like a blatant disregard for others. And actually, blatant disregard is actually too soft. They enact appalling actions towards others. And that's what judgment is about. Judgment is related to these appalling actions. And one example that is outlined in the text, one example of many, we can read it. Look at verse 3 of what, how we just read. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes, 
and they sold girls for wine to drink. Verse 6, you sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. They are selling people into slavery, young and old. And we also know from the text that they took people as slaves for themselves. Ezekiel chapter 27 says this specifically about Tyre, explicitly. Tyre, Greece, Tubal, and Meshech did business with you. They traded human beings and articles of bronze for your wares. They traded human beings for the things that you had. And you took those human beings for the things that you had. Not only did you sell girls and boys into prostitution, not only did you sell people yourself, but then you took human beings. This was widespread and common and appalling. And so here Joel is talking about the nations surrounding Israel doing this. But Israel Israel themselves would need to be silent in light of these words. They can't afford to think that these words are only relevant to the nations around them because they've done the same thing. They have no room for pointing the finger for smug self-righteousness because they too did the same thing. Amos chapter 2, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And Amos here, there's this picture that Israel are doing the same thing. Selling marginalized people for things that they want. So again, these actions are absolutely widespread, common, and appalling. As I was reading through commentators on this section of the Bible, Joel chapter 3, I was reading a British commentator. And as this commentator was talking about these seaports, Tyre and Sidon, he pointed out the seaports of my own country, England, the seaports of London, and Bristol, and Liverpool. And that was a moment for me to be silent. And so I looked up the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool. In 1792, Liverpool was the leading slave port with 131 sailings. There were 42 from Bristol that year, and 22 from London. They brought slaves to America and the West Indies and they were traded for goods and for ivory and for gold. Human beings transported out of my own country, traded for ivory and goods 
and gold. We read these things here in the Bible, but we also read them in our own histories. And just a month ago, there was a hearing for a man in England I was reading it on the BBC News. 39 people were found dead in the back of his truck. Right? We don't just read it in the Bible or in history museums. We read about this kind of exploitation still in the news now. And January is Human Trafficking Month. It's a month where we're supposed to be becoming aware of these kinds of things. And while it's different, these different moments where people are exploited and sold and taken advantage of, labor and sex trafficking is still a reality today. It is still a problem. It still happens. 39 people were found on a truck and this man was committed in December, just December of 2019, he came for his hearing related to that incident. So it's not just in the biblical text or in history, it's in the here and now. These actions that we're reading about in Joel, they are widespread and they are common and they are appalling. And God stands against it. He always has and he always will. He stands against it in the nations. He stands against it in Israel. He stands against it in our own histories. He stands against it in the newspapers. He also stands against it in us. when we see other people as less than ourselves. Or when we see people as a means to an end that benefit us. He stands against that. And God is against it because he invades to heal and overthrow what is evil. In everything, everywhere. And we need him to. And we can't afford that we just need him to do that for somebody else or in the life of somebody else or in another nation. We need the evil that is in the world to be cut out. And we need it to be cut out of us. Which is why... The Bible talks about the day of the Lord. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near. Where that will be cut out of the world that we live in and it will be cut out of us. So we know why we need it cutting out of us. So then we ask, what is the day of the Lord then? And there's a um, 
a video that's going to do a really good job of kind of the overarching narrative of the biblical text, and so I'm going to have us watch it. Johnny showed it at the beginning of the series, and we're going to watch it now. The day of the Lord. And what I want you to listen for is the very end. The very end, the people who are speaking talk about um, a promise about the day of the Lord and an invitation about the day of the Lord. So I might do a little quizzy quiz after, so um, listen in. What's the... What's the invitation and what's the promise related to the day of the Lord? Let's understand what the text is talking about, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It's a phrase in the Bible that religious people use, usually when talking about the end of the world. Yeah, things like Armageddon or the apocalypse. You might be familiar with this image of Jesus returning on a white horse. He's got a sword to bring final judgment. And everyone wants to know, how will it all go down? So a lot of these images come from the last book of the Bible. But to understand them, you have to go back to the first book. When the story begins, we watch God create an amazing world. And then he gives humans power to rule over it on his behalf. But the humans are tempted by this mysterious, unhuman character who offers them a promise. You could define good and evil on your own terms and put yourselves in God's place. Which is what they do. And the resulting stories are about the broken relationships and violence that results. Yeah, this promise creates huge problems. Now everyone has to protect themselves and fight for survival, and they're all using death as this weapon to gain power. It all leads to a story about the building of the city of Babylon. Or in Hebrew, Babel. Everyone comes together to elevate themselves to the place of God. And God knows how devastating this could be. A whole culture redefining good and evil as if they are God. So God confuses their language and scatters them. Now from here on, Babylon becomes like an icon in the biblical story. It's an image that represents humanity's corporate rebellion against God. And the next time we see it is in the story of ancient Egypt. Yeah, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he feels threatened by these immigrant Israelites. He starts killing all of the boys and slaving the rest. And this is really evil. Yeah, Egypt's like this bigger, badder Babylon. They take care of themselves at the expense of others by redefining evil as good. And so God turns Pharaoh's evil back on him. His pride drives him forward, and he's swallowed up by death. Now, after this great deliverance, the Israelites sing a song about how God is their warrior who liberated them from evil. And the Israelites referred to this moment as the day. The day they were rescued from a corrupt human system. And every year since then, the Israelites have celebrated the day of their liberation with this symbolic meal of a sacrificial lamb that's called Passover. Eventually, Israel comes into its own land, have their own kings, and they face new enemies. So that past day of the Lord, celebrated every Passover, begins to generate hope that God will bring the day again to save Israel from new threats. Now, out in the hills was a sheep herder named Amos. He was appointed by God as a prophet to announce shocking news to Israel, that God was bringing another day of the Lord against his enemies, and this time the target, 
is Israel. What? Sadly, Israel's leaders had also redefined good and evil for themselves, resulting in corruption and violence. So God's people have become like Babylon. The oppressed become oppressors. Babylon seems like a trap no one can escape. And so the day of the Lord comes upon Israel. They're conquered, taken captive into exile. And from then on, Israel suffered under the rule of continuous oppressive empires. This is the story Jesus was born into. Yeah, in his day, the oppressive empire over Israel is Rome. So is Jesus going to confront Rome, take him out? Well, no. Jesus saw the real enemy as that mysterious, unhuman evil. The evil that's lured to Babylon, Egypt, Rome, Israel. All humanity has given in to evil's promise of power. This is what Jesus resisted alone in the wilderness when he was tempted to exploit his power for self-interest. But he didn't. And after that, he started to confront the effects of evil on others. Yeah, he started saying that he was going to Jerusalem for Passover for a final showdown to confront the evil of Israel and Rome by dying. Dying? I mean, that feels like losing. Jesus was going to let evil exhaust all of its power on him, using its only real weapon, death. Jesus knew that God's love and life were even more powerful, that he could overcome evil by becoming the Passover lamb, giving his life in an act of love. And something changed that day. When Jesus defeated evil, he opened up a new way for anyone to escape from Babylon and discover this new kind of power, this new way of being human. Okay, so something changed. But... The power of evil is still alive and well, and we keep building new versions of Babylon. Right. And so the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, points to the future and final day of the Lord. It's when God's kingdom comes to confront Babylon the Great, this image of all the corrupt nations of the world. Yeah, this is it. Armageddon. Final judgment. How is Jesus going to finish off evil? Well, it's not how you'd expect. In the Revelation, the victorious Jesus is symbolized by a sacrificial bloody lamb. And then when Jesus does arrive in the end, riding his white horse to confront evil, he's bloody before the battle even starts. Pre-bloodied? That's a strange image. Yeah, it's because Jesus isn't out for our blood. Rather, he overcame with his blood when he died for his enemies. And the sword is in his mouth. It's a symbol of Jesus' authority to define good and evil and hold us accountable when he brings final justice once and for all. And so, in the meantime, the day of the Lord is an invitation to resist the culture of Babylon. And it's a promise that God will one day free our world from corruption and bring about the new things that he has in store. Sorry about the quality. Maybe that'll just motivate you to go to the Bible Project and have a little listen. And it was hard to hear at the end, though, but there was two things, an invitation and a promise about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a promise that there's going to be final justice once and for all. It's a promise that 
God will deliver the world from all of its corruption and bring about the new things that he has done, renewal. God is going to renew. And in the meantime, the day of the Lord is an invitation. Did you hear what the invitation was to do? It was a little hard to hear. I'll I'll give you a, a free grade on that one. The invitation is to resist. To resist um, this, this corruptness that tries to make its way into us. I mean, we're already in some ways corrupted, or we are, but there is this notion that when we come to put our tra- trust and faith in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, and so we're given a new kind of power, which is what Johnny was talking about last week, that the Holy Spirit comes, rests on us, and gives us a new kind of power to live out the way of being a human, the way that Jesus wants us to live it out. Really, the real kind of human. And what that looks like is revealed in Revelation, which is kind of surprising because it's like, that book, I don't really always get what it is. But in the Revelation, it's this letter or message to the churches, and it depicts this multi-ethnic band of people called the church. And that multi-ethnic band of people, the book tells us what they should be up to in the meantime. In this moment where we have the Spirit and we're given this promise of all the corruption being moved, what are we supposed to be about in the meantime? It talks about the invitation, and that invitation is to resist the unhuman character that lures us in. And to resist the false promise of power and self-interest that will always be perpetuated by that unhuman character. To resist that. And instead, to disrupt that system by living into God's system. That's the invitation, is to disrupt that system by living into God's system. And so the church is to follow Jesus. And Jesus is depicted as a sacrificial lamb. And so when people see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of Jesus, that is when people will get it. That's when the lights will go on. When people see the church enacting these loving, sacrificial, embodied actions here and now, that's when people will get it. Not killing or fighting or demanding from enemies, but demonstrating sacrificial love. It's those actions that are going to move people towards God. And we know what happens when people move towards God, right? We already read it in Joel chapter 2. What can they expect? Joel chapter 2, a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from calamity, because what has he offered us? Mercy. What has he offered us? Forgiveness. What has he offered us? Transformation. 
And so our disruptive acts of self-sacrificial love become the alarm bells. And they call people into God's mercy. That's what our job is. To preach that way. So I want you to leave here knowing two things about the end. About judgment. One of them is that God promises to free the world from corruption. That he's going to bring about all that is new. He's going to renew all things. And then the second thing I want you to hear that is in the meantime, you are invited. Invited to resist. To take on that new kind of power, the Holy Spirit. The presence of God that is given to us as we put our faith and trust in him to take on that new kind of power and to live out the new way of being human. His spirit empowers us to be a new kind of human, Jesus kind of human, a Jesus kind of community of humans. And the Bible is full of ways, which is why we need to read our Bibles, not because we have like, religious duty or obligation, but because we kind of want to lean into what this new way is. What's the system that you speak of? How can we know it? We can know it by reading the text. Tells us. That's why we would read it. So that we could understand who God is and who we can be in relation to him. So that in a world of vindication and revenge, we become the people of forgiveness. That in a world of power and success, we become a people that pay attention to the powerless. That in a world of productivity, we become a people that pray. That in a world of endless expectation and perfectionism, we become a people who rest. That's the good news, right? Yes. That in a world of noise and chaos, we become a people who know how to hold silence and look for beauty. And celebrate. With these kinds of acts, we become like Joel, sounding the alarm. Not so people are afraid of God, but so that they want to move towards God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. So this chapter, Joel chapter 3, is an invitation for us to live in light of the day of the Lord. So I'm going to invite you to try something disruptive this week. Because when you do, Missio, 
When you do something disruptive, you point yourself towards God. And you point those around you towards God. And that's what we need. Because we are very aware, not only from the text, but from our history books and the news of what we are capable of as humans. And we need pointing back, reorienting back to the goodness of God so that we can live in his rhythms, in his systems, and point people into that too. And we have the power to do so. So we put our faith and trust in Christ. He gives us the spirit Johnny talked about last week so that we can be about these kinds of disruptive activities that point to a God who will be merciful. So maybe you need to pay attention to someone who is powerless this week. Maybe you need to pray or rest, I don't know. But as you come to this table, know that you have received mercy. That you receive forgiveness, that Christ absorbed all that was evil in order to be able to give you abundance. And in being the recipients of that abundance, you're then invited to get in on the inviting. Come in, people of Salt Lake. There's a different way that we get to live by. It's the way of Jesus. The way of sacrificial love. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we'd be good preachers. All of us. It's not just my job. It's our job. And I pray that Missio Day as a community that we would be good preachers. And with the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, the actions of our lives, that we would be demonstrative of what it means to be in proximity to you. And Holy Spirit, you would empower us to resist the system that corrupts us the system that would invite us into pride and self-interest, whether on large-scale deplorable activity or small words to those we love and live next to. That instead of that system, we would attune ourselves to you. And that by being in tune with you, we would resist. And in resisting, these acts of resisting, we would point to, to you. We would point to your graciousness, to your kindness, to your love, to your mercy, to your forgiveness, to your rest, to your quiet, to your beauty, to the ways that you celebrate. And so, Holy Spirit, we need you to help us this week to have the power to do so, to be a people in this city that are about renewal, that we would sound our own alarm bells with small acts of resistance declaring who you are with our own sacrificial love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.